0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the next page. I'm Natalie Alexander, and this is the podcast of the UN Geneva Library and Archives. This is a special episode bringing you a story from history. While we cannot travel much these days, as we work together through COVID-19, we hope this story will take you on a bit of a journey. Our colleagues Gudrun Beja and Colin Wells are joining us from the Institutional Memory section, which houses, among other collections and fonds, the League of Nations archives. Gudrun is team analyst and Colin is project manager for what we call the LONTAD project, the total digital access to the League of Nations archives project. And they share more in the episode about the importance of the League of Nations archives and the LONTAD project, which by its completion will ensure free access online to the entire archives of the League. Now, there's a lot to explore in these archives. And for this conversation, Gudrun shares a brief history of the world's most traveled document. As part of the team working recently on the processing of the mixed archival Nansen Fond, they came across examples of some of the very first modern passports and travel IDs issued. Now, Gudrun shares a lot in this narrated story, so I won't say more. And Colin also gives some analysis about what we can find in the archives on these Nansen documents, but also what this collection, as well as the wider archives collection, mean in terms of understanding our history, the work of the League and some of its lasting impacts, and our perspectives as we look at our history and multilateralism moves forward. Now, we recorded this episode from our own homes. It was a lot of fun and we hope you enjoy. Take care. Let's go. Gudrun and Colin, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you. It's great to have our archives colleagues here so as we begin, let's firstly hear a little bit more about yourselves. Starting with you Gudrun, how did you become an historian and what interests you about the archives?
2: I've always been interested in old photos and documents and uh, in my childhood I kept uh, putting these treasures into boxes and uh, over the years I turned into the unofficial archivist of the family. So it was only logical that I chose to study history and international relations and I went to the UK, attended the University of uh, Kent and Oxford and later joined the Graduate Institute of International Studies here in Geneva where I got a PhD. And, um, I feel I consider myself extremely lucky to be able to combine two of my passions, which are, um, preserving the past and studying it and seeing its implications in current affairs by working for the United Nations Library and Archives.
0: Incredible. Um, over to you, Colin.
1: I initially got into archives also with a historical background. So, my sort of undergraduate major was in European history. Um, After sort of spending a few years sort of thinking about how I would turn that into kind of a professional career, I sort of stumbled upon the idea of going to library school and looking at either becoming a librarian or an archivist. And once I was in graduate school, I really gravitated towards archives. I did my archive studies in New York. And while I was there, we actually had the opportunity to visit the UN Library which really kind of was the first time that I had the spark that, you know, maybe I could actually do a career in the UN in library or archives. And then once I finished my degree, I actually applied for, at the time, what was called the National Competitive Recruiting Examination, which has now been updated a bit in the UN world and is now called the UN Young Professionals Program, and basically was eventually accepted and joined the UN here in Geneva in 2010. And I came here as the chief of the archives management unit. So basically responsible for all of the historical archives activities in the library in Geneva. And obviously the core of that activity is around the League of Nations archives, which as an archivist is really kind of a dream collection to be able to work with just in terms of its sort of historical significance. And also the fact that we have a really active research community, which means that there's a lot of interest and sort of different things you can really do with the collection. And then a few years ago, we had the opportunity to start what's called the Total Digital Access to the League of Nations Archives project, which is really a massive project to digitize, provide online access to, and to provide for the physical and digital preservation of the entirety of the League archives. So since 2017, I've been the project manager for that project.
0: Incredible. We're going to hear a little bit more about the LONTAD project and the League of Nations Archives just in a little bit. So thank you, Colin. But we're going to start with Gudrun and come back to speak to you a bit later for some more of your analysis. Gudrun, you have a particular story today to tell us from our archives here. Before we get to that story, for those of our listeners who don't know much about the League of Nations Archives, what are they and why are they important?
2: The League of Nations archives is a really unique collection of historical records and official documents of the world's first global intergovernmental organisation. And it is housed at the United Nations office here in Geneva and is managed by the institutional memory section of the UN library. And it consists of approximately 15 million pages and comprises three linear kilometres, so that's quite a bit.
0: Wow, so 15 million pages. What did these archives look like?
2: Our archives are kind of approximately 100 years old and come in many forms. We have letters, reports, minutes, registers, maps, photographs, and even surprising objects like samples of dried bananas.
0: I feel like I should ask you about the samples of dried bananas.
2: <laughs> okay. Well, the dried bananas were actually sent by a producer of banana flour to the economic and financial section of the league. And um, if I'm not mistaken, the original quest was to include this item in the new unified customs, Nomenclature
0: a bit about the dried bananas in like the podcast notes or something definitely <laughs> <laughs> it's just to hear a little bit more about that but when I think of archives I can't help I guess but think of you know yellowed paper the scent of old documents the smell of old books but as an historian yourself what are three words or things that describe what archives mean to you
2: I would definitely say heritage and there's a part of discovery, t- discovery for me. I mean, you always discover, you stumble on new documents and evidence, historical evidence.
0: Awesome. What we're going to hear now is a good reflection of those words, especially discovery and evidence. So let's move on then to the story of this episode, which is called The World's Most Travelled Documents. So, Gudrun, what archives have, have you unearthed for this story?
2: Well, the recent processing of the mixed archival Nansen form reserved some really interesting surprises. It contains specimens of the very first modern passports and travel IDs issued. World's Most Travelled Document This is the story of early passports and Nansen certificates discovered in the League of Nations archives. Let's travel back in time to the Belle Époque, which lasted roughly from the end of the Franco-Prussian War in 1871 until the outbreak of the First World War in 1914. Back then, travellers could roam the world unhindered, provided they had sufficient means to support themselves. In his novel, The World of Yesterday, The Austrian author Stefan Zweig aptly described the freedom of movement that prevailed at that time. Before 1914, the earth had belonged to all. People went where they wished and stayed as long as they pleased. There were no permits, no visas, and it always gives me pleasure to astonish the young by telling them that before 1914, I travelled from Europe to India and to America without passport and without ever having seen one. Alas, this golden age of travel was brought to a sudden end. The First World War broke out. By the end of the war, the regime of mandatory means of identification had become widely adopted in the western world suddenly border officials were confronted with a plethora of travel documents of various shapes and sizes and were left with little if no guidance as to which ID was authentic
0: so, so, these travel documents, do we have any of them in our archives?
2: Yes, indeed. We do have some very early uh, travel documents, and uh, it really shows that at that time no standardized size or format existed. We found IDs printed on a single sheet of paper, whether or without photos and uh, booklets of various shapes. So, uh, finding a solution to the lack of standardization was urgent as the resumption of peaceful diplomatic relations as well as economic recovery and we relied heavily on smooth border crossings. Freedom of movement was on the agenda in 1919, when the Treaty of Versailles established the League of Nations, but it soon became clear that fences are easier built than dismantled. National security concerns prevailed, preventing a return to pre-war travel conditions. To tackle the problem, the newly founded League of Nations convened a major meeting in Paris, which would have a long-lasting impact and shape modern travel as we know it today, the 1920 Conference on Passports and Customs Formalities and Through tickets. The conference was successful and then it standardised the size and format of travel documents. A passport template was developed which specifies exactly the size, layout and design of the future international ID.
0: Wow, so could you tell us a little bit more about this conference then? How long did it last and what did it really take to reach the outcomes that it did?
2: Well, the Conference on Passport, Customs, Formalities, and Through Tickets of Paris opened on October 15, 1920, with 22 governments represented and lasted until October 21st. And um, prior to the conference, uh, optimists aimed for an arrangement to restore pre-war conditions, that is, the total abolition of passport for travel in Europe. But um, at the conference, it soon became apparent that this was impossible. However, constructive measures such as the passport template were presented and uh, the conference submitted a number of recommendations in the form of a resolution to the League of Nations Committee dealing with communications in transit, which forwarded it to the Council for approval. So um, member states were then invited to adopt the measures, and in October 1921, that is about a year later, 30 countries revealed that they had given practical effect to the resolution, or were prepared to comply in the new future. So one could say that the process was pretty quick. But let's return to the new international travel document. At the 1920 Paris Conference, it had been decided that the modern passport would take the shape of a booklet measuring 15.5 x 10.5 centimetres and contain 32 pages. It was furthermore decided that French was to be used in combination with at least one other language, and that the front cover of the document had to bear the country's name and coat of arms. Most of these regulations are still used today, though modified versions as regards size and display of information. Meanwhile time was pressing with the outbreak of the civil war in Russia, and regulating freedom of movement had become an urgent matter. An estimated range of 1 to 3 million Russians had fled their country and settled around the world, mostly in Constantinople, Prague, Berlin, Vienna and Paris. In 1921, all these refugees had become stateless when the Bolsheviks issued a decree that revoked the citizenship of all Russian expatriates. The League of Nations established a structure to assist Russian refugees. Frithjof Nansen, a Norwegian polar explorer and diplomat, was appointed first head of the newly created Office of the High Commissioner for Refugees. In July 1922, Nansen convened a conference at the League of Nations in Geneva, where he designed an innovative response to the post-World War I refugee crisis. Nansen obtained an agreement to create an identification certificate for stateless persons, also known as the Nansen Passport. This ID, normally valid for up to a year, was renewable at the discretion of the issuing authority.
0: Wow. So diplomat and polar explorer, not usually two words you associate with the same person. Could you tell us a little bit more about Nansen, but also the conference? How was it? How was multilateralism at work there?
2: Friedrich Nansen must have been a truly exceptional character. In his youth, he was uh, a champion skier and led the team that made the first crossing of Greenland in 1888 uh, using cross-country skis. So that's quite a performance. And um, He was a very versatile person and studied zoology at the Royal Frederick University in Oslo. And um, He was not only a scientist and explorer, but also an exceptionally gifted diplomat uh, and humanitarian, and he received a Nobel Peace Prize, so um, that is quite a distinction. At the request of the the International Committee of the Red Cross, uh, the League of Nations established an office to uh, assist Russian refugees, and Nansen became the first head of office uh, of the High Commission for Refugees. Um, and um, the major problem impeding Nansen's work on behalf of refugees was that um, most of them lacked documentary proof of identity or nationality, and um, without legal status, their lack of papers meant that they were not able to travel anywhere. Uh, this question was discussed during several preliminary intergovernmental conferences and in In 1922, a decisive meeting was then convened by Nansen in Geneva, and an arrangement concerning the issue of certificates of identity to Russian refugees was finally signed uh, on July 5th. This tackled the problem by offering a temporary travel ID to stateless persons.
0: Incredible. So as the first head of the Office of the High Commissioner for Refugees, I imagine he had some significant issues to lead, not only uh, this question of stateless persons,
2: Well, besides the question of refugees, one of Nansen's biggest challenges was to find a solution to the repatriation of prisoners of war. And uh, in this regard, we can say that Nansen's nomination as a High Commissioner for Refugees was far from accidental. Not only was he a citizen of a neutral state, but he was also known for a strong sense of ethics and integrity, and um, his reputation as a polo explorer had made him hugely popular. So um, in the end, it was not surprising that even the Bolshevik authorities accepted to discuss with him.
0: So in the archives, there are some of the Nansen certificates and passports. Could you tell us more about these? What what do we have in the archives and what does it tell us about this time in history?
2: Well, indeed, our unique collection comprises numerous Nansen passports or certificates issued in various countries, such as France, Luxembourg, and Greece. The of Nansen was highly concerned with the welfare of refugees as well as with their legal status. The Nansen passport were designed to provide solutions for both. And at the same time, an important new function was conceded to the High Commission for Refugees. The organisation was granted the right to certify the identity of refugees without having to pass through a sovereign state authority. This meant direct protection of individuals by an international organisation. But let's return to her story. So... Ultimately, the main purpose of the Nansen passport was to enable holders to travel to a third country and thus to relieve the pressure on overcrowded locations like Constantinople, Belgrade, Vienna or Berlin. The goal was to distribute refugees more equitably among members of the League. The agreement was successfully broadened to include Armenian, Syrian, Turkish, Spanish and Tsar region refugees. It is said that approximately 450,000 refugees used Nansen passports, which were issued until 1938 and honoured by no less than 52 countries. The Nansen passport not only served as a valid travel document, but also granted a juridical status and an unprecedented form of international protection to stateless persons. To conclude... Our outstanding collection comprises some of the very first Nansen certificates issued, related correspondence, and various early modern passports, which all bear traces of the identity of their long-forgotten holders. And this podcast is dedicated to each of them.
0: Thank you, Gudrun, for sharing this story. Colin. I would also love to hear your thoughts on this story and what it means more specifically for what we can find in the League of Nations archives.
1: Yeah, if I can just jump in too, just to add a little bit more detail about what the archives actually hold in terms of Nansen passports and sort of related documentation. So the Nansen passport system was actually generally managed by national immigration services uh, and whatever the divisional and administrative structures were in each country that participated in the Nansen passport system. So what we tend to have in the archives is more, we have some certificates, documentation from some national offices that was transferred to Geneva, but there unfortunately was never a centralized list created for all of the Nansen passports issued. And this is actually one of the areas where we tend to get quite a few requests from our general public in terms of trying to trace their family history. Um, So it can be unfortunately a little frustrating sometimes for the general public to try to find evidence of that in our archives. We do have transfers from the Nansen offices that existed in Berlin and Vienna. So there we can sometimes find information on individuals, but uh, generally it can be quite difficult or time consuming to find a lot of information about individual passports that were issued under the system. But uh, there's still really a really rich, fascinating history about how refugees were treated, particularly in Europe, but uh, also around the world in terms of resettlement to other countries uh, and all those related issues that we still, of course, see today.
0: How do you see the role of this collection in our history?
1: And Maybe I can talk a little bit. More generally about the collection, I think obviously the League archives as a whole is really vitally important to understand how not just the United Nations, but the world generally approaches and tries to address issues multilaterally. So the League really was kind of an experiment and was the first organization of its kind. And so the League was really a crucible in which all the actors that we see today engaging in multilateralism were already involved in this kind of experiment to find solutions to the big complex international problems that existed at the time. So it wasn't just nation states that were discussing issues at the League, but you had a whole constellation of civil society organizations, what we would now call NGOs, and other groups that really saw the League as a forum at which they could address their issues You also had members of protected minority groups, uh, residents in mandated territories, technical experts of all kinds, and also just the general public that really tried to engage with the League and its member states in ways that are extremely relevant to today's world and how we see issues addressed, international issues addressed today. Not to mention just that any issue of international importance during the interwar area was essentially addressed at the League. And many of our current issues obviously have long histories that go back to at least the interwar era, if not long before that. So So there's, of course, still relevance in what we find in the League archives. And of course, the UN itself can trace a lot of its structures and how it operates to the League itself, as well as from lessons learned at the League. So the UN took what happened at the League and what they saw as its experience and really tried to improve that in the structure of the UN.
0: Fascinating. And just to build on on your answer there, what are your thoughts on how we can best use or consult, understand our archives, as multilateralism evolves and and moves forward?
1: So in terms of the Lantad project, there really are two critical benefits that we see. Um, The first, of course, is the improvement to access. So the League archives will be completely accessible online, and that will really improve access to the collection. Uh, Nobody will have to come to Geneva to access the entirety of the, the archives. And we really think that will open the doors to new sort of communities of researchers as well as new audiences. The second benefit is that once you have a digital collection, you uh, give the opportunity to... Analyze the collection in new ways. Um, So there's all new kinds of avenues of research involving digital humanities and data analysis techniques. So uh, we really think that this will open sort of the floodgates for historians and other researchers to look at the collection in a new way. And we're really quite excited to see what researchers do with that. And again, uh, we're also looking forward to see what kind of new research communities start to use the collection that uh, haven't really before. So right now, our user community tends to be very heavily academic. But uh, we do think by having this online that that can open the use to people that have otherwise never really considered using the archives so whether that's journalists the general public secondary school and undergraduate students or uh, really importantly those who are directly involved in multilateralism including diplomats uh, ngos and other experts
0: really exciting where can we go to learn more about the archives but also the lontad project
2: i would recommend a newly published wikipedia page on the league of nations archives and the lontad project available in english and french and other languages and for research purposes, the United Nations Library in Geneva has a page devoted to the League of Nations archives. And um, we also have a very informative webpage on our digitization project.
0: So, so we'll make sure to have the links um, also to, to our social media links as well in, in the show notes. To both of you, thank you so much. It's been really, really interesting for me and I hope for our listeners too. So I hope to see you both again on, on the next page. With pleasure. <laughs> <I'm
1: sorry>. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> Dude, that was gonna happen. <laughs> Go ahead first. Then.
2: <laughs> okay. With pleasure, Natalie. Thanks a lot for having me.
1: Thanks very much, Natalie. It was really fun.